Though traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's Oil Analyst, and we're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere. An important note, Refinitiv was recently acquired by the London Stock Exchange Group, a.k.a. LSEG, and I want to remind everyone that, just as before, the opinions given by Jim, me, or any of our guests are our own and not those of LSEG. Now, today we're talking about political power structures and how those structures influence and control the energy industry. And speaking of power, Marcus Aurelius was the last emperor of Rome when there was intergovernmental tranquility for the empire. And he once wrote, no sooner is a thing brought to sight than it is swept by and another takes its place. Now, Jim and I don't necessarily see all items like that and hold a few because of the reminders they give us. So, Jim, tell the people what I mean, and while you're at it, talk to us about Canada. (laughs) All right. What is the oldest thing in your house? Is it you? Perhaps a piece of furniture from a bygone era. To no one's surprise, for me, it's books. The oldest book I have is from 1873. It's The French Revolution by Thomas Carlyle. I have a number of books from the 1880s, but the oldest thing in my house that means everything to me is a chair a 100-year-old chair from the Milwaukee Chair Company. Chairs are utilitarian by nature, but this one has a history that ties in with our theme today. My grandfather owned a machine shop in Minneapolis. He made a very specific piece piece of equipment for AT&T. Did so well, he retired in his mid-40s and went to run a nonprofit that helped people pay for medical bills. While running the machine shop and this nonprofit, I got my first look at power and influence. I didn't understand how it all worked at the time. However, it all seemed to emanate from this mildly uncomfortable, creaky old oak chair. I keep the mildly uncomfortable, creaky, even older now oak chair as my reminder of how the golden rule differs in theory and reality. So who is the constitutional leader of Canada? Yeah, you guessed it. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Many people think, since Canada and the U.S. are so closely aligned, that the government power structure is about the same. Canada actually resembles the U.K. more than it does the U.S. Why is this important? The people making the big decisions about energy, the environment, and natural resources in Canada are not elected. They're appointed. Canada is a federal constitutional monarchy. The ruler of England's representative in Ottawa is called the Governor General. The Parliament of Canada is represented by 105 appointed senators, appointed by the Governor General on the advice of the Prime Minister. Canadian citizens elect the 338 members of the House of Commons. The Prime Minister is typically the leader of the party that controls the most seats in the House and, this is critically important, has the confidence of the members. This is called a majority government. If no party has a majority of seats, the party with the most seats or the party most supported by the other parties will get the nod from the governor general and will form a minority government. There have only been 14 minority governments in Canada's history, and this is where Canada has been since the 2019 election. 
typically these end with a no confidence vote within two or three years. One prime minister had the job for just three days. Justin Trudeau has led the minority government for about one year, 65 days as of this recording. So that's great, Jim. Add some music and dancing MPs and make a video. Why do I care about this? Because of this idea of has the confidence of the MPs, members of parliament, the Canadian government almost by mandate is moved into centralist politics, which I will quickly say as a U.S. citizen, I would enjoy some centralist politics for a while. Anywho, to move this center takes a massive force, like the one the oil industry saw in 2017 through 2019, where hundreds of millions of dollars poured into Canada to create a very un-Canadian-like rancid mania about their largest sector. It took a while, but groups like the Canadian Energy Center answered this purchased hatred with facts and civility. Now, Canadians are starting to see they are already better than carbon neutral. They're carbon negative. When the center of Canadian ideology believed in the half-truths they were being fed, they were also susceptible to believing some ruinous ideas on projects touted as green energy. I'll leave the motivations, incentives, and governmental manipulation for the listener to discover. I just want to highlight the dangers of a mania-fueled group think. As an example, I present the Muskrat Falls Hydro Dam on the Churchill River in Labrador. The final tally of $12.7 billion is more than double the original cost and puts the province on the brink of bankruptcy. A comparable net gas generation facility in Labrador would have cost around $800 million. That's a huge difference from $12.7 billion. The final bill is 40% bigger than the entire annual budget of the province. Electricity rates jumped 50% higher when the dam started producing electricity. Hunters and fishermen, indigenous or not, had to stop their activities as the methylmercury from the construction was killing fish and wild birds. And this thing came with a hefty greenhouse gas footprint. Project plans estimated 300,000 pounds of CO2 from equipment. This is minor compared to the 1.15 million pounds of CO2 from the construction material, which is insignificant compared to the amount of methane produced by this reservoir. The Muskrat Falls Reservoir is a bit under 25,000 acres. The methane being produced from a reservoir this size is equal to the amount of methane produced by 68,818 cows every year. The reason the EPA in the U.S. doesn't list hydro dam reservoirs as the single biggest methane emitters is because the problem is in measuring over such a vast area. In fact, the academic journal Bioscience, a publication of the American Journal of Bio Biological Science, produced an October 2016 study that says the million or so hydro dams around the world emit, and I quote, emitting just shy of a gigaton, a billion tons of annual carbon dioxide equivalents. That's 1.3% of the global total, end quote. This just reinforces what many of us have known for a long time. There is no such thing as clean energy, and sustainable energy is a trade-off at best. I'm just afraid to ask about the U.S. at this point, but let's have it. 
Burning animal dung poses a few issues. It takes a good portion of the day to collect it. It takes time to dry it. And of course, someone has to mold it into flat patties, or is done now onto sticks. Aproveco, an Oregon biomass nonprofit, suggests even today there are around 2 billion people still using this energy source for cooking. Then there's always the dioxins and chlorophenols that are emitted from flaming duty. If that does not sound fun enough, the calorific value of burning animal dung is around 13,000 kilojoules per kilogram. To give you some frame of reference, the calorific value of burning dried wood is around 20,000 kilojoules per kilogram, coal is around 32,000, and gasoline and diesel around 45,000. And for what it's worth, hydrogen is around 11. Not 11,000, 11. That's the topic for another day. In 1807, French inventor Nietzsche Nipsey created the first known internal combustion engine. It ran on mashed spores from the lycopodium plant, coal dust, and some oil to hold it all together. At the same time, Swiss inventor Francois Rives developed an internal combustion engine that ran on hydrogen and oxygen. Neither was very successful. There's speculation who designed the first gasoline engine, whether it was George Sheldon in New York or Carl Benz in Mannheim, Germany. Sheldon's design was a two-stroke engine and had significant issues. Carl Benz's design is the basis for the auto engines we use today. For what it's worth, the first diesel engine was created by German engineer Rudolf Diesel in 1892. Anyway, it was this time in 1879 that gasoline engines started to be produced and installed in vehicles. Gasoline, steam-powered, and even the electric engine produced by French engineer Gustave Trouvé competed for decades on what was to power the future of the horseless carriage. Guess which one won? The reason for the history lesson is that none of this would have been possible if the invention of a cheaper, safer, more energy-dense fuel was ever invented. Can you imagine a buffalo chip-powered car? Throughout history, mankind has moved from a fuel of any source is better than no source up through the efficiencies and concerns of the various sources we have now. The power structure that drives a very large, diverse energy market like the U.S. is not presidents. There have been lots of presidents since the buffalo chip days to hydrocarbons. And it's not even pandemics like COVID. COVID didn't create any energy trends. It just accelerated the evolutionary trends already in place. Electric vehicles are getting a lot of hype, but let's put this in perspective. There are around 287 million cars and trucks in the U.S. Around 2 million are electric vehicles. Electric vehicles have barely elevated themselves to a rounding error. We saw a bigger impact from the evolutionary trend of mileage efficiency. A few millennia of energy history have taught us the fuels that will eventually win and dominate the power structure have four traits. They are energy dense, they are on demand available, they are portable, and they are the safest of the energy sources we know of. I can't tell you how many times I brought up those four traits in conversations about energy. But anyway, uh, tell us about Mexico. The standard bearer for duality is the novella Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, 
this text is so rich in duality. Trying to follow, follow the individual strands is like trying to follow the individual strands on a plate of spaghetti. The obvious is good and evil, but by Victorian standards, Dr. Jekyll was not completely morally good. I also marvel at the social hypocrisy detailed from the Victorian era. The topics are different, but the same eminence front exists now as it relates to energy. The duality I want to talk about is the subplot of private versus public. In the novella, this comes across as the individual person's role versus the class divisions in Victorian England. Such is the case in the Mexican power structure around energy. The foundation of this duality comes from the tumultuous history of Mexican rule. Now, the Mexican president can only serve one six-year term. It's the same for state governors. Senators serve one six-year term and cannot have consecutive terms in office. For the House of Deputies, it's a three-year term and no consecutive re-election. This does prevent longtime politicians from gaming the system like we see in the U.S. However, this system makes it really difficult to sustain any kind of movement, for better or worse. Thus, status quo rules of the day. Making the 2013 constitutional amendment around opening up the oil market to foreign partners pretty miraculous. But it also explains where they were only able to take this one big step and not the next four or five needed to truly free up the oil industry. There are certainly more forces at work determining Mexican oil policy, but I want to highlight three that seem to rear their ugly head. First and foremost is the culture of corruption. In 2013, the, the 2013 changes created a large demand for influence in the decisions over who got the best deals. Apparently, it went all the way to the top, with three top officials still battling corruption charges in court. Even worse than the actual corruption is the lingering stench of selfish wrongdoing that hangs in the air. This melodious haze casts shade on everything President Obrador is trying to do. The net result being either nothing can get done, or in the case of Dos Bocas refinery, gets summarily judged. This refinery should be a sense of national pride, as with its output, Mexico will not need to rely on the relatively expensive import process. Dos Bocas will pay for itself inside of 10 years and literally provide fuel for Mexican expansion. Second is the beast that is Pemex. It's not fair to criticize management. Huge debt and the source of a third of the government's revenue creates an environment to simply prolong the cash cow. Instead, I want to look at the debilitating effects of singularity. Pemex can only solve one group of problems at a time. When they need more oil, they focus on developing new fields. When they have enough oil, it's refinery maintenance or stamping on fuel theft or cutting back on refinery maintenance to keep the Dos Bocas construction alive. This singular myopic focus unfortunately has an outsized influence on how, what, when, and where Mexico can focus on oil-related products. Perhaps breaking a Pemex into a number of component pieces a la Standard Oil would solve this. And yes, I'm sure John D. Rockefeller is smirking at the fact that the two biggest pieces of his empire have had preliminary talks to merge. Irony is a fickle partner.
The final influencer is the technology stack. In the U.S. and Canada, for example, universities, third-party companies, and even oil companies themselves collaborate and individually develop new technology to progress the industry. They do this because they have an, a financial incentive to do so. In Mexico, not so much. The Mexican Petroleum Institute, IMP, is responsible for that. I already mentioned the hazards of singular myopic focus, which is an issue here. There's another issue, though. The IMP was established at the same time as Pemex in 1938. The reason Lazaro Cardenas set these up was the belief that foreign entities were making more money than Mexican entity, entities were on extracting Mexican oil. They were able to do this because of superior technology. Mexico created the IMP to act as a stitcher of foreign technology. By implication, that means small incremental gains. It's called applied research. There was no incentive to do the 10x moonshot kind of technology advancement of basic research. This myopic focus, along with the tendency towards applied research, still very much limits Pemex decision-making on how they proceed with developing their oil wealth. So, Corey, how about South America? Yeah, South America. So I could probably teach a course on each of the 13 countries that sit on the continent, complete with dossiers on thousands of political figures and power brokers in each separate state. Of course, I'm not going to do that. It's going to try to hit the high spots. And the highest spot to hit is a political force that is common to just about every sovereign nation in South America. What do you think it is? If you said China, then give yourself a pat on the back. Now, to be clear, there are other countries in the world that have an interest in the region. The U.S. is one. But China's push is deep. And, of course, we're here to talk about energy, not infrastructure investments, defense, or any of that. But just from a general commodity standpoint, if you take a look at several of Refinitiv's flows tools, you can see, for example, Chile exported 13,500 kilotons of iron ore last year. Every last bit of that went to China. Brazil exported about 336,000 kilotons of iron ore, and at least 75, or excuse me, 70 percent of that went directly to China. Agricultural products: corn, soybeans, soybean meal, sugar, etc. Uh, collectively, Argentina, Brazil, and a country we don't talk about often, Uruguay, exported about 217,000 kilotons of product last year. At least a third of that went directly to China. Like everything else, COVID mucked up the normal flow of things, but recall that the U.S. is the largest supplier of soybeans to China, and that during the U.S.-China trade war, Brazil gladly stepped up and boosted soybean exports to China, as did Argentina with soybean meal exports. Like I said, we're here to talk about energy, but the China-U.S.-U.S.-everyone-else relationships is a theme that I'll discuss more in a bit. So what about energy? South American countries aren't exporting refined products to China. China has enough refineries, but they are exporting crude. Last year's flows put that volume at over 3 million barrels per day, and at least 30% of that volume made its way directly to China. Now, you've heard me say all this before. Brazil wants to, and is, focusing on increasing exportable production. Argentina is doing the same, as is Colombia, Guiana, Suriname, etc. And who's buying? The Chinese. China agreed to not reduce its buying from Colombia during the pandemic. 
Brazil routinely sends over half its crude exports to China. And Sinook is one of the big three operators in Guyana. And of course, Venezuela still owes China a lot of money. So regional power structures are important for the energy industry in South America. But regardless of who is in power, countries in the region are somewhat beholden to China and are remiss to bite the hand feeding them. Yeah. So let's talk about those regional power structures. I understand there's some new developments in Venezuela. Uh, Yes. So a reminder of a bit of history with Venezuela and the U.S. The U.S. has been sanctioning people and organizations from Venezuela for a very long time, but PDVSA wasn't sanctioned until late January 2019. Prior to this, the U.S. was importing crude oil from Venezuela at the tune of about 500,000 barrels per day. And at that time, around 75% of Venezuela's crude oil revenues came from selling to the U.S. This led to a bit of frenzy with U.S. refiners looking for a substitute for these barrels, bidding up of Mars Sour, West Texas Sour, and increased imports of Colombian, Canadian, Saudi, and other grades. Even more imports in the way of Russian fuel oil. But like I've said before, even prior to sanctions, the country had seen its production fall to lower levels from a once impressive high of 3 million barrels per day. What's changed? First, the Trump administration saw that you know, historical sanctions were not working to pre- pressure Maduro to leave power after 2018 elections, universally agreed to have been illegitimate. So the administration turned up the heat with PDVSA sanctions. But if you've been living in a world free of news, a world where I may not mind joining you, by the way, uh, Trump's out and Maduro is still in. The approach to Venezuela has been codified, 2020 USC Chapter 104. And I understand that there's a possibility that some sanctions have been extended to 2023. But going forward, the U.S. approach to Venezuela will hinge on a couple of things. The Biden administration's relationship with the country and who will eventually come to power within the country itself. So let's tackle the last variable first. Within the chapter of the U.S. Code that I just mentioned, it explicitly discusses recognizing the president of the National Assembly of Venezuela as being the interim president of Venezuela. It specifically names Juan Guaido personally, but the new, fairly new anyway, development that Jim asked about is this. The countries that recognize Guaido as a president during the aftermath of the 2018 elections are having second thoughts. With the European Union, the member states voted um, earlier in January to no longer recognize Guaido as the interim president because he lost his parliamentary head of position after elections last December. But there's more play here, however, as the EU doesn't recognize those elections as legitimate. So why then the change of heart? because nothing has really happened since he was made interim president. If you're in the U.S., you see power struggles, but don't, thankfully, ever think about the U.S. military as being significant, domestically at least, for the daily running of the government and who holds power. In Venezuela, this is not the case. Here's a comparison. The U.S. armed forces are composed of over one million members. Of that million, less than 1,000 are senior leaders. Think admirals and generals. In Venezuela, 150,000 or so members of the military, and 2,000 of those are senior leaders. Leaders. Wow. You know why? Because that's page one of the How to Be a Dictator playbook. 
control the military by making a few people happy, and you control the country, regardless of the day-to-day situation of the general populace, especially when you keep spies within the barracks and put troops to doing menial, non-military tasks, i.e. buying favor with the people. So where one of Guaido's policies has been to call for military mutiny, it's failed. Where a small group of former Venezuelan soldiers conducted an invasion, it failed. And outside of Guaido, the many opposition parties to Maduro, Maduro are disjointed and disagree amongst each other. And he has seen their leaders, largely replaced by Maduro's sympathizers, arrested and or forced into hiding. Okay. So I could go on about different people in the opposition parties or even powerful people within the Maduro regime, but I won't. I'll just say that despite the EU vote, the organization still considers Guaido to be the opposition leader. And perhaps more importantly, the Biden administration has stated that Guaido will continue to be recognized as Venezuelan president. That brings me to the second factor. What will a Biden administration mean for Venezuela, specifically energy? First, okay, Biden continues recognizing Guaido as president, but the Maduro regime has reached out to the new administration about repairing relations between the two countries. Biden has indicated that his administration would pursue some form of humanitarian relief for Venezuela's citizens, but it is unclear whether any of the sanctions, particularly sanctions on PDVSA, would be lifted. Now, recall that the U.S. had levied sanctions on Venezuelan individuals for a long time now, but it wasn't until the Obama administration that Maduro-specific sanctions started. Taking that history with Biden's invitation to his inauguration, and it says to me that the U.S.-Venezuela relationship may remain status quo for some time. Uh, But eventually, Biden will have to do something about the situation when his administration does – It will likely be more focused on the people and not so much on releasing the squeeze on the oil industry there. All right, I'm looking at the time here. I didn't intend to spend my entire time in Venezuela, but I'll weave in more of our topic from today into subsequent podcasts. For the oil industry, it's just hard to ignore the country with the world's largest crude reserves and how the U.S. administration will deal with the subject that has been so contentious the last few years. In proximity to home, Venezuela will likely be the most difficult foreign relations relationship excuse me, that the U.S. has had to deal with for over the next year or so. And with that, Jim, please close us out. The golden rule, as I was taught as a youth, is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. However, the politics of influence has changed this golden rule to be he who has the gold makes the rules. Unfortunately, this ideal is one that dominates modern business and politics. Looking behind the motivations of some, not all, but some of the decisions made about very large projects or governmental initiatives is a sobering exercise. Next week, our friends from Rapidan Energy will join us on the mic, and the analysis will be in the form of a game show. I can't wait. Sounds like fun. Thanks, Jim, and have a great week, everyone.